Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. In our verse-by-verse study of Matthew, we've arrived at Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. Jesus has just prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane three times for the will of the Father to be done. His disciples have fallen asleep, and He tells them, Get up, let's go, see my betrayer is near. That's verse 46. And then while He's saying those words, verse 47 takes place. While He was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and the elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, Put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father, and He will provide me here and now with more than twelve legions of angels? How then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets will be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. The moment of betrayal has finally really arrived in that where Judas, having been inhabited by Satan, dispatched from the upper room, has now fulfilled what he conspired to do for 30 pieces of silver. And as they arrive, we can see that stuff goes down, all right? The, uh, the one who gets his ear cut off, his name is Malchus, according to John 18.10. He's not named in Matthew's gospel, but in John's gospel, uh, he's named. And Jesus actually restores his severed ear, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 51. That account is not included here. But this teaching is what's emphasized. That's, that's Matthew's style, is to emphasize the teachings. He doesn't even follow a strict chronology. It gets more chronological here in the closing chapters because it has to, right? John, uh, Matthew's not going to, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mix up and put the, uh, the resurrection before the crucifixion, for example. Rather, he gives this teaching. And uh, this, is, this is pretty much the last time Jesus addresses a crowd, but it's not your average crowd. This crowd has shown up with uh, uh, armed, with clubs and swords. So Jesus points out that he's never been in the public square armed. He's never acted like a criminal. He hasn't done anything illegal, in fact. And yet they arrive with swords and clubs as if he were one to try to capture him. There's something else, though, too. Do you know that Judas had to indicate, he had sort of orchestrated how he would indicate to the chief priests and the elders which one of them was Jesus? These people showed up with clubs and swords here to capture a criminal, but they don't even know which one he is. In Isaiah, which is the next book we're going to study, we see what some people refer to as like the proto-gospel, like this pre-gospel. It's almost like an Old Testament gospel because it's so clearly about Jesus. Here's Isaiah 52 verse 13 going into chapter 53. See, my servant will be successful. 
He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told to them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now, we'll move on to that. You'll hear more from this passage later on. But I'm amazed at how there's nothing remarkable about the appearance of Jesus that we should be drawn to him according to Isaiah 52 and 53, specifically uh, <clears throat> specifically in um, verses, sorry, forgive me for not knowing exactly what that verse was because I just read it and I lost track of where it was within the text. According to Isaiah 52 and 53, there was nothing about the appearance of Jesus that should draw us to him. There was nothing about his, there was nothing about his, his outward appearance that should make us immediately kind of say like, oh yeah, this is a guy who is marked by majesty. Rather instead, he's, the only description we have of his appearance is that at the cross, he would be so disfigured, he doesn't look like a man. That's in verses, that's in Isaiah 52, verse 14. Um, or there it is, 50, 53 verse 2. Forgive me for forgetting that a second ago. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. This is it. This is all we know about what Jesus looked like, right? That he's of the line of David. Both Joseph and Mary uh, were from the line of David. And so we know that he doesn't inherit genetic you know, traits from Joseph, but from Mary. And we know that, so he likely had... He likely had, you know, dark skin and brown hair and brown eyes, but the text doesn't say anything about it. All we know is this. He didn't have an attractive appearance. Judas had to identify who he was. Jewish men would only kiss in public and really formal occasions. So this Judas kiss, the actual original Judas kiss was an act of betrayal. Friend, Jesus asked him, Jesus called him a friend as he walks up and says, greeting, Rabbi, why have you come? He's already told him what you're going to do, do quickly. And so he asks a question to which he already knows the answer. But the response is not an answer from Judas. The response is the arrest of Jesus. So at that moment, one of those with Jesus, I believe this is Peter, reaches out his sword and he strikes the high priest's servant, Malchus's ear. <clears throat> the healing ministry is not included here, but can you imagine being Malchus? Can you imagine being Malchus? Can you also notice that this massive mob, this huge mob with swords and clubs, they just came there for a fight, not even sure which one they were gonna arrest. There's a possibility that they might go after the wrong guy that night. And then some of them who were paying attention just bore witness to a healing miracle. Jesus claims in verses 52 through 54 to be able to summon, to call upon the Father, and to be provided here and now at the moment of his arrest with more than 12 legions of angels. Now, 12 legions of angels 
could be, depending on your definition for a legion, the Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers and a roughly equal number of auxiliary troops to support each legion. Thus, 12 legions of angels, according to the CSB Study Bible, would be equivalent with 72,000 or even 144,000 angels, more than enough to defend Jesus. We've seen one angel take on an entire army in the Old Testament, and this could be up to 144,000 angels, depending on your definition of a legion, at least 72,000 angels. The odds are in Jesus' favor. The point is that he goes to the cross willingly. He acknowledges the injustice of it, the sham, that they would show up, not even know which one he was. He's been publicly teaching every day in the courtyards. He's never committed a crime, yet they treat him like a criminal. He heals a man right there on the spot. All of this has been prophesied. So Jesus goes to the cross with full knowledge and full willingness. It's not the crowd that subdued him. It was not their swords. It was not their clubs. At any moment, Jesus could have ended the cross. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. We've come a long way from the upper room in a short amount of time. We know that they were exhausted from grief, praying with Jesus in, Geth- in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus sweat blood. But man, just earlier that evening, they had all promised they would die before they abandoned Jesus. And now they've all gone their way. Peter's going to kind of follow from a distance. Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and a servant girl approached him. That's verse 69 that's coming up as Jesus is facing the Sanhedrin. But wow, they've scattered. Earlier, Jesus had had quoted Zechariah. He quoted the prophet Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that he would strike the shepherd and the sheep would scatter. Now now we see the sheep scatter exactly as, as was foretold. Never forget the willingness of Christ to go to the cross. It was for the atonement, the sins of all who believe in him, that he was slain. It was for the glory of God that he was crucified and resurrected. And so now God, while being fully just, can justify sinners. This is the effect. The agony that Jesus felt was the weight of the sins of the world upon his heart. And the effect that this had, his willingness to go to the cross, rather than bring 72,000 to 144,000 angels to deliver him, the effect is the glory of God, the ultimate, the greatest, the most unfathomable and incredible and important miracle in the history of the universe, atonement for the sins of all who believe in Christ. Aren't you grateful for the willingness of Christ to go to the cross? Today, would you meditate upon Christ's willingness to go to the cross?